Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Bang Talk Star Wars. I'm your host, Lee. I am here. I am joined by my co-host, Jamie. Jamie, how are you? I'm great. How are you today? Doing well. Two-man weave today. It's just me and Jamie. Spencer sitting out the Mandalorian season except for beginning, middle, and end. So we will get Spencer back at the middle of Mandalorian season three. But we are in episode two of season three of Mandalorian. This is overall chapter 18, The Minds of Mandalore. Jamie, what did you think of the episode? Two thumbs up. Loved it. Enjoyed it thoroughly. Wanted more of it. Uh, it did remind me how much episodes, because when they're short, I'm left wanting more. But honestly, if something leaves you wanting more, it did its job. It was good, and it didn't overstay its welcome. So uh, I would have wanted like 10 more minutes, but it was it was good. Yeah, I agree. I thought this was very in line with the Mandalorian that we know and love. It's the definition of the show, right? It's Mando and Baby Yoda on a mission to do something. They encounter problems. Escapades occur. And then there's reveals, mythos, lore, stuff that happens around that that will get the Star Wars nerds like myself and you super excited, which we got a mythosaur sighting. So that did that did that for me. I was actually a little shocked we were already at the Mines of Mandalore because I thought him going to cleanse himself in the living waters of the Mines of Mandalore would be the season long arc, but that's clearly not the case. That, that was, that's a, a er, that's an early season thing that he's boom, gone and done. And it's already over. So that happened a little faster than I expected. Agreed. I, I really expected it to take a long time to get down there. I imagined the mines wouldn't be, Oh yeah, the back door of the palace is mines. Let me show you. Here it is. You're here. It, I didn't expect it to be quite like that. They were talked about as a mythical thing. And I guess I guess it makes sense if you had something of so much cultural significance, it wouldn't be in the industrial park. It would be they very carefully put an industrial park in the middle of Times Square or something. Um, I It does make sense. It fits. I'm not unhappy with anything. But, yeah, I was expecting it to take a long time to get there. I was expecting the surface to be more inhospitable. Um, I was expecting there to be some poison gas. They kept talking about poison. Right. Yep. We'll, we'll get to that later. I'm a little confused. On, I'm a little confused on what happened to Mandalore exactly. She talks about the why and the who and kind of the how, but you need to know that an atmosphere is breathable. Like that's not hard to find out. And there are a lot of people interested in Mandalore, even if they all think it's worthless um yeah i i am getting my head myself that's the one thing that i kind of didn't buy is how much people hadn't gone there why not at all apparently so yeah you can't sense it from the outside i buy that fine and like that i there is in horror movies currently a thing where the number first question when you're writing a horror movie is why don't their phones work that question or they're not isolated. They're not alone. They have their phone. They have the internet. They have Twitter. They have call the police. So you have to have their phones break first. I accept it. You can't call out. You can't see it from the outside. But you can just go down and, like, stick your droid out there. I can tell people. I don't get it. Yeah. I think that the way that what happened to Mandalore was explained in previous lore, so this includes Clone Wars, and then also, I think some of the comics, 
is it was always in my mind sort of compared to Alderaan. The planet itself didn't blow up the way Alderaan did, but the Empire basically took the entire planet offline, is how I had always heard it described. That it was it was blown to bits to the point that no one could ever live there again, completely inhospitable. Like, it's over for Mandalore, right? And that seems to be overstated based on what we see here. So that's kind of an interesting development. Right. Uh, so in, we'll in get pro- in. Go ahead. I was going to say, in prior episodes of Mandalore, because I have not seen uh, – in, in some ways, this maybe helps. Since I haven't seen Clone Wars, since I haven't – since I, I know random lore, but not all of it, I only have show to go off of. They had described it as if the whole planet had been – in a way that I thought was irradiated. I thought the whole thing was so radioactive that droids broke, people broke. If you go down there, nothing can live. You will die. Your robots will break because the entire planet is made of radioactive material now, is, is the impression I got. They didn't say that, but that's what it seemed like. As they got closer and they talked about it being uh, melted to slag, you know, he found a thing. It didn't have anything special written on it. It was just in Mandalorian, from Mandalore, and it was half glass, half sandstone. And she seemed surprised to see it, as if I didn't think there'd even be this much writing on the surface of Mandalore. Okay, fine, if they just melted the whole thing, so there's no soil, no sand, no buildings, if it's a planet made of jagged glass, that's kind of poisonous too. Nothing can live, no oxygen cycle, no water cycle, Fine. And if, if you really would have to hunt to find a cup, a jagged glass, you could call that cursed or poisoned. This is just, they killed everybody. Bombs. Like, you definitely could rebuild if you wanted to. Right. and But you could see how there would be an advantage for the Empire to perpetuate the myth <clears throat> that they had bombed it out of existence, right? Because, like, A, it shows their complete domination over the Mandalorians. B, it's a warning shot to any other planet, system, or people, or culture who might want to, you know, buck up to the Empire. So it does kind of make sense there'd be some propaganda around what the Empire did to Mandalore. So I don't know. I, I'm willing to go with it, but it, it is a swerve. It is different than what we've been led to believe about what happened to the planet. So why is Manly... Tell me and the other dumb listeners, because you, you're here to represent the smart listeners, and I'm here to represent the dumb listeners. Tell us, what did Mandalore do to piss off the Empire, like, exactly? Is it that they just said, look, we won't bow, you know, we don't kneel, we're Sparta? Or was it they joined the Rebellion? Or They didn't join the Rebellion. They didn't join the Rebellion. It was more more along the lines of they wouldn't bow. They wouldn't do what uh, the Empire wanted them to do. They were historically independent. They wanted to trade independently. Uh, anytime the Empire tried to have a presence on their planet, they'd try to kick them out, so shit like that. So, no, it wasn't that they were part of the, the rebellion. That's an important distinction. But it was more yeah. that they just unbowed and been unbroken type deal. And yeah. um, the Empire came in. The Night of a Thousand Tears occurred. That blew, blew them to bits. And the people of Mandalore uh, scattered. But it, as as Bo-Katan points out in this episode, that wasn't really all that long ago. It was like maybe 15 years or something, like it, from where we're at now. Yeah. So, you're right. The Empire would want you to think that the place was inhospitable. The more they could raise up the mythos of it's poisonous, the more they could even encourage the cults to say it was cursed. That's great for them. But, one, 
there was a rebellion that wouldn't listen to them and would have loved to like go down and check on their buddies or go see, Hey, can we get any of that Beskar out of the mines? Like see, this place has been looted a lot less than I would have expected. Unless that's the, maybe now it's time to get into plot line. Unless that thing counter that I want you to talk to me about, it looks like maybe that thing was there to trap and kill Mandalorians who tried to come exploring. Um, if there's a lot of those, maybe that's where the mythos came from, that everybody who came down didn't make a backup, that they all got too tempted to explore a little too far, and they all, after about 60 people do that, you're going to say it's poisonous or cursed or something. The Night of the Thousand Tears was the night on which the Galactic Empire massacred the Mandalorian people on the planet Mandalore during the Great Purge of Mandalore. The attack came after Lady Bo-Katan Kryze, leader of the Mandalorian Resistance, against the Empire laid claim to Mandalore through her ownership of the ancient black lightsaber known as the Darksaber. So uh, part of it was simply ownership of the planet, but Bo-Katan saying, we are an independent planet, I own this planet. Look at me with the dark saber and the empire going, we cannot allow this. We cannot allow somebody to say they are independent, that they are outside of the empire's sphere of influence or power. Oh. Therefore, here's a million bombs. Oh, Bo-Katan. Now I want to, like, give her a hug. Like, uh, Bo-Katan's the best. I, I, I am like, I, I've long-standing, long-standing Bo-Katan fan on this podcast. I'm a big fan. Again, having only seen her from Mandalorian, I like her. I like her a lot. I like her every time she shows up. I like pretty much every, almost every line she has. Um, I feel like she needs a milkshake and a hug and a cat because the fact that she now, with some wrong or stupid, but her actions directly led to the destruction of the planet she ruled and the murder of all her people, and that's on her soul forever. She thinks she caused it. Right. Oh my gosh. Sounds uh, sounds a, sounds a little bit like another princess that we know of. Uh, <laughs> a whole lot of a whole lot of parallels with Princess Leia, where her direct actions led to the destruction of the entire planet. That she felt like, in her position, in her station, in her birth, that she was entitled to rule the planet, and the Empire disagreed. It's interesting to me how we have so much as a fandom sympathy for Leia, the way that she was presented. I always go back. Look for me, everything in life is professional wrestling. So how Leia was portrayed to the audience, how she was presented as a character was immediately sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Whereas Bo-Katan was not necessarily immediately sympathetic because her with the way she's portrayed in Clone Wars and then now in Mandalorian is of somebody who power hungry, entitled believes they should be, ruler caused the destruction of her own planet through her pride, ego, or just inability to work with the empire. That presentation is so different than the presentation of Leia, but the core facts are not that far apart. But as a fandom, we treat them very differently, Leia and Bo-Katan. So I just find the, find the comparison interesting. So uh, you, you, the, the listeners can't see it, but I have a thousand yard stare going on the whole time you were talking because it just now occurred to me the depths of PTSD that Princess Leia has, because I, I've always known how traumatic I or imagine how traumatic that would be. Somehow, it didn't really occur to me that in her mind it was her dicking around. Yes, with Archie, with, with the were. yep, with the yep. Oh, where the rebels were, 
Anakin might have left it alone because if the real rebels were on a good base, they might have gone. Who knows? I mean, I we're sympathetic to her and we're always like, oh, well, they were going to do it anyway. It wasn't her fault. That and she definitely doesn't know that. Oh my gosh! Now they need to hug each other. And they need to hug it out for like. Yeah, the most oh under. I need a moment. I need a moment. The most underrated thing I feel like in all of Star Wars is the destruction of Alderaan because like we get that in the first like what ten minutes of Episode Four, and then we just move on as if, oh well, that's a bad thing to happen. But now let's go tell the story, and it's like, think about what destroying a planet is. Like, that's heavier than anything that happens in the whole rest of the story. It's like, think about if Earth got destroyed, every city, every bit of culture, every bit of art, every bit of language, every bit of everything we've ever created, gone, evaporated. It boggles the mind to think of something that massive, evil and spectacular occurring. And it happens in the first 10 minutes of the story. And then we're supposed to just move on. So I have two thoughts on this. The first one is. This is partially a casualty of a single biome planet because for us to deal with a thousand planets, we kind of have to treat each planet as if it's a country. Or city or something, like, yeah. Right, as if it's a very small country because we can only really imagine like – The galaxy we, as a planet. Right. We can imagine the galaxy as a big planet. Imagine each planet as like – and that's all we can internalize. So the idea of you know them blowing up cities kind of internalize it similarly to, you know, the nukes in World War II or something. As No, it's really big. It's a lot of dead people. It's a big problem. No, you actually have lost the entire history. Like, the universe will now forget what happened there because there's no writing for there anymore. The art is all gone. The history is all gone. The sports records from their entire species is gone. So that's big. But the second thing is that – television can deal with they're trying to address it here they said it i mean i am literally quoting ahead of myself now but she says an entire people is now a memory and basically implied of my memory our memory just like the six of us memory remembering things there's nothing left which i don't buy since she's literally standing in the ruins which i'm sure still have books but that's 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 my own little tiny rant so let's get into the recap of the episode. We'll start with recap. We'll do best line of the episode, but then we'll talk a little nostalgic moment of the episode. It's a couple moments that could be nostalgic moment of the episode. We'll start with Tatooine and we see some, is that pod racers, Jamie? Do we see some pod racers? They, they did look like pod racers. I thought it was. I, it, I think it was it, some pod racers. Somebody saying, oh yeah, oh, I'm Ray Skywalker. like, Skywalker? I knew a guy who raced pod racers under that name. He was really fast. That's the Tatooine thing. They race pods. Then we see our our favorite mechanic. She's talking with a Rhodesian, Rhodian, who wants his, her racer fixed. Rhodian, of course, the same species as Greedo, who, uh, known throughout the Star Wars universe as having shot first. We all know that. Uh, we get a cool scene of her haggling. She's talking about a big holiday coming up, and we see an astromech droid that is red and white. This will come up later. She's working with this droid quite a bit. As soon as the guy leaves, the Jawas come in. And it seemed to me, Jamie, you, you always pick up on these things faster than I do. I think your raw intellect shows in these situations. But, like, it seemed to me what they were portraying is a scam. That the yes. Jawas would strip the race, the pod racer, the ship, the whatever for parts. The people would come to her and say, hey, can you fix it? And then the Jawas would give her the parts back that she'd put it on the ship. 
and then they just basically milk money from whoever the scam happened to. Yes, she is literally stealing from people, uh, literally fraud and scam and theft. Um, and because uh, they say it, they say, you know, rough up the parts, make them look like they did, repaint them, make them look like it didn't come from his. Go strip another one. Like, it's, yeah. it's a good day for it. Go strip another one. So, yes, yeah, so that she is running right now a, a scam where she is stealing things and then selling them back to the original owners. Okay, but I'd Which like everybody, I'd like all of our audience to know, I still like the mechanic. All, knowing all of that, still like her. Mando comes in. She asks how the ship is going. He says it's faster than he knows what to do with. So I like, I do like that this, this little factoid about the ship is that like it's, there's less space on it, obviously, than his previous ship, but it's much faster. I think that'll come up again and again. She goes, where's my guy? Grogu pops up, sees her, and then excitedly force jumps into her arms. I like that Grogu likes her. I like that we, like I'm on, I talk about this every week. The more they can flesh out the character of Grogu, the happier I am. I like that he has favorites, people he likes, people he doesn't like. He clearly really likes the mechanic. He clearly, clearly really likes Ahsoka too. Um, here's the thing I don't like is that when he force jumps over to her, he kind of rotates and flips. It looks very fake. I would have like, I would have preferred the force jump to look like a real jump which is where you don't go ass over fucking toes. Instead, you just like jump into somebody's arms, like a, like a straight up jump, as opposed to this weird flippy thing, almost like you're tossing a doll. So remind me, think back to Luke training on tat on a uh, Dagobah. He does a flip when he's like one of his running jogging montage things. He, he does a flip like that, doesn't he? Not only does he do that, Grogu does flips when Luke is training him in Book of Boba Fett. So it's not inconsistent. I'm just saying I don't like it. So I now want to know that – so that's how he trained Luke. Is that the only way that you can do – oh, Obi-Wan does flips. And maybe that's just force jumps include flips. Maybe the force likes to go wee. Maybe. She says – she says, who – Taught you how to leap like a lerman. Grogu tries to talk to her a little bit. He coos, babbles. She asks Mando if he's back to see Boba Fett, but he isn't. I like that little, that little connection to the previous series where she just assumes he's there to see Boba Fett, but he's not. He's looking for a memory circuit for the IG droid, IG droid, which we established last episode as a fool's errand because he wants his droid back. And what that means for Mando, we know enough about Mando to know that what that means is he wants his old buddy back. He wants to be able to talk to the IG droid. Like he talked to him before, he self-detonated. Problem is you're buying a new circuit, memory circuit for it. So you're, in essence, buying a new brain and a new memory. So this is a complete fool's error, and it's never going to work, what he's trying to do. But even more than that, she explains, we don't even have it here, Mando. We don't have what you're looking for. However, good salesman that she is, I've got this nice little R5 astromech droid here for you. Beep, boop, beep, boop, and you can have it. Mando says the droid... Eh, looks like it, uh, it's falling apart. She goes, ah, look, look, it's great. I'll give it to you for half price and I will reinstall the droid port on your Naboo Starfighter. So it'll all work out. You'll now have a little droid in the droid bucket. And the most important thing I think for the plot and all of this is that A, he's not getting the memory circuit for the IG droid. So he's, he doesn't have that. And two is that he'll have someone on the ship 
that can pilot in his absence. I think that's important too. Go ahead, Jim. So, so I hate this part of the exchange. I think it's the only part of the episode that I hate, and I really hmm. do. So, here's the two things that I hate about it. One involves Mandalorian famously stubborn and follows through on his quests and will keep looking until he finds what he's looking for, who says, oh, you don't have it. Well, I need it for this thing. That one instead. So now he doesn't have to go find a circuit anymore. This was the reason he was getting him was for spelunking. Maybe now he'll go on a friendship journey just for friendship, but he doesn't even need it anymore. Gave up on his quest to bring his buddy back to life. Has he? Well, he doesn't need him anymore. People do it for friendship, but this this was the reason. He went to the one planet for this thing. He went to this planet for this thing, and then he just said, oh, I tried. Oops. See, I thought this was an addition. the first droid I see instead. See, I thought this was an addition, too. I thought that, like, he's what still he going. For? Well, I, I thought that he wanted, he just wants IG back. I, I, I think that at this point it's kind of beyond an individual quest. I think he just wants that droid back. And so I, I think that like having an astromech droid and more importantly, probably his droid droid port reinstalled on the ship. That, though. Anybody could have done that. Sure. Of course, anybody could have. Of course they could have. Yeah, absolutely. But it's still a useful thing to have. So, so I, I, his, his, the high, high, high chancellor. But he could have said, look, I'll give you an astromech. We'll put the port in. And he would have said, no, I'm wanting this thing. And now he's just, oh, well, I guess I don't really need him. You know, my, when my best oldest buddy convinced me of this so hard, I went to multiple planets. But okay, when so, you say it, I, yeah. I'll just roll over. I'm done. I, I don't need to look any further. This, you're right. Crappy astromech is good enough to spelunk the depths of a cursed planet. Okay, you're you're kind of cutting in and out it there a little bit, but I think what you're the point what you're trying to make is that it's that it seems like he gave up on trying to get the IG memory circuit. He just took this astromech droid, the first thing that came along, he was talked into it. I didn't hear him explicitly swear off the IG droid to quest. If he is in fact doing that, then I'm with you that this is kind of it was all for naught and kind of stupid. I thought that this was a sort of like, oh, sure, I'll I'll take this astromech droid, but I'm going to keep looking for the memory circuit for the IG droid. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. All right. Let me know if you can hear me better now. I just changed my microphone. That's a little um, better. Yeah, it's a little better. If uh, if you're right, then I accept it. And it kind of like leans into if he's just dumb about droids, that's actually a fun plot point, And I'm OK with it. Um, if the I need him for my quest was an excuse to go get the friend. You know, we're having a little bit of a Legolas Gimli, we can't be friends, but we're actually totally tight with each other thing. I'll accept that. And he's now kind of giving up on the pretense, you know, yes, I can do Mandalore without him. Uh, you know, you vouch for this one, that's good enough. Then I'll accept that. If it's really the only reason he was looking for his buddy is I need a droid, there's only one droid I trust. Oops, you know, you convinced me. Uh, then, then I hate that. The second thing I hate it is she's kind of scamming him, and either he's letting it happen, or he's stupider than I thought. And they're weirdly like tight, where they help each how, other. How is she scamming him? She gave him a terrible droid that's not well suited for the task. The thing is a terrified mess. After sale, she even says he's twitchy, um, he, and he is not made for spelunking. 
He's not made to go down. He doesn't have legs or hands. Presumably he has the little floaty jets like R2-D2, but we haven't seen them. You know, a rolling droid is not the one you want for spelunking. Um, and this one in particular doesn't even want to go. See, I don't, I don't think she's scamming him. I, I think that, I she's think she's him a piece of crap that she can't move otherwise. I don't know that I believe that. I think that, I think it's very similar to when she sold him the Naboo Starfighter, which is she doesn't, when he comes to her with a need, she doesn't always have exactly what he, I mean, she's a small business owner. She's got just a handful of, of equipment around. I think she sells him the best that she has for that particular thing at the time. The Naboo Starfighter was not a one-to-one replacement for his previous ship. It's just the best that she had at the time that she had access to. The same thing with this astromech droid. I don't think, I don't think either her or Mando think this thing is perfect, but I think it's a cheap, he, he's getting it for cheap. And it does, it ends up being very, I mean, having it ends up saving his life later because the, the droid is able to get Grogu back to Bo-Katan. So it does come in useful. Do you think that she thinks this droid is well suited for spelunking? I think she thinks that's the best thing she's got to give him for that at the moment. But no, probably not. But she probably doesn't have anything better. Well, but there are other people selling droids. She even knows them. She could go get him one if she wanted to. She wants to make a profit off of him. So she's like, well, it's the best I got. So I'll sell you what I've got. So I make money. Right. But that's, that's very different than outright scamming. That's, I'm going to sell you the best thing I have. Outright scamming is I am going to strip your ship and then (laughs) get the people who strip the ship to give me your fucking (laughs) parts that I will then reapply to it when you come to me. That is a true scam, which she's running here. I think she's selling the best thing she's got. When Mando comes around, she wants to make a sale. I'm not saying she's 100% altruistic. She's not. She wants to make a sale. But that's very different than an outright scam. So – the, the Spencer would appreciate the, the phrase, you know, um, uh, of you know, whether it's fit for the purpose that you're selling it for. She's selling him the best that she has, but I don't think I don't think it's suitable for the purpose that he's looking for. She is using his trust in her um, to sell something that's not actually suitable for the task at hand. It's most suitable but it really isn't, you know, it, it's not. Now, it, it does test the, the atmosphere and it does it, fly it Grogu does. back to Bogotan. So it's not completely useless. You, you are right. She's not, she's not defrauding him, but she is putting her business above his well-being and he's letting her. I don't know. It was, that was very strange to me. Well, the, this, I, is a not, think... this is not the best droid for the job and he's okay with it anyway for some reason. Well, I think that. Like, I mentally don't put her in the same place as, like, say, a Bogotan or a Boba Fett. Like, she's a business owner that he happens to do business with. Like, she's not Team Mando, like, I'm going to give up my money, time, and effort to make sure your quest succeed. It's, if you come around, I'll give you the best deal I can give you relative to the fact that I'm running a business, I want to make profit, et cetera, et cetera. She's not, like, she's not, like, somebody who's, like, in business for him to succeed, she's in business for her to make a profit. And he happens to work with her. Yeah. And, and it is okay for there to be people with complicated relationships where they help each other and they maybe even let the other one get away with stuff or get the better end on them sometimes, figuring it'll all come out in the wash. You have frequent customers so you can give them extra things. Maybe even, and this is speculation I'm not sure I buy, 
she is, she actually is just that good, and she kind of knows what he needs better than he does. Like, the Nabu Starfighter, I was really on the whole, that's not remotely a replacement. This is stupid and bad. But it's turned out rather well. Uh, even the fans apparently like it, too. So it's, maybe this droid is what he needs, and she knows it. Maybe she's just that good or something. Grogu's looking out the window. So then we have the opening credits. Then we cut to Grogu's looking out the window at Mando, and he sounds concerned. Mando says he knows it looks scary. Um, well, hold on. No, we, we, we jumped ahead a little bit here. Um, let's start with – Jump ahead the, all the way to the opening credits. We're moving real fast. Well, the, she gives him the, the, the astromech and droid, and she sets it all up, and then we get we cut to the evening, and they leave. And as they leave, Grogu seems to be enjoying the fireworks, and then Mando says, okay, kid, ready for an adventure. Then we get the opening credits. Then we get Grogu looking out the window at Mandalore. He sounds concerned. Mando says he knows it looks scary, but it used to be green and beautiful. Back when all the songs were written, it's Mandalore, the home world of our people. I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that after Grogu chose Mando over the Jedi, that now Mando, you know, that plus the armor saying that he was a group of two. Grogu clearly not going anywhere, clearly wants to be with Mando, that he just considers Grogu a Mandalorian now and talks to him as if he's a Mandalorian. So a lot of things we're getting this episode, and I imagine this entire season, we're going to get is Mando trying to impart the knowledge that he has about the history, culture, et cetera, of Mando, Mandalorian, uh, of the Mandalorians and Mandalore onto Grogu. Because he sees Grogu as a Mandalorian, which is kind of a cool thing that Grogu is considered a Mandalorian uh, in the story. Yeah, by him at least. I do. I'm briefly curious what the uh, a blacksmith armor, what she thinks of Grogu now, because he's a foundling. He hasn't taken the oaths yet, but he's following an apostate. I'm really curious about that. Whether he is actually on the outs just by association or by being, you know, the follower of an apostate or in the clan of or something. I wonder. Seems like Grogu gets a pass from everybody, deservedly so. Well, and he he hasn't made any swears of anything yet. So even if he is out right now, he could, you know, if he showed up, learned to talk, and put on a helmet, she'd say, "Sure, now is when your new life starts." Mando says, don't, "All don't, Mandalorians don't talk, to, don't talk to that guy." Mando says, "All Mandalorians can trace their roots to the Beskar mines on Mandalore. Concordia, which is another moon of the Mandalorian system, is where he grew up." Mando gives some Papa wisdom here. A Mandalorian has to understand maps and know their way around. That way they'll never be lost. Then we get a landing scene in the surface of Mandalore. Does look like those green crystals that Mando had from the last episode. Melted surface. I like that. Mando explains it on the surface. They can't radio to anyone else. This is the horror movie no cell phone thing you're talking about. When they get get on the surface, they are not able to radio out, so they are cut off from everyone in the entire galaxy. Mando tells R5 that he has to go test the surface. It seems like R5 isn't into it. Let's get destroyed, which our favorite mechanic explained earlier. But Mando just drops him and tells him to do it. Groku, being the cool, caring, empathetic creature that he is, is a little worried about the droid, doesn't like this. And Mando has to talk, kind of talk him through it. Says, the droid will be fine. I just need him to take some readings so we know it's safe. And he tells the droid, don't be a baby. Just take the samples we need and hurry up. Grogu's expressions are so good in this episode, I'd like to say. I feel like they're incrementally getting better with the doll, specifically his facial expressions. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we see Grogu concerned enough about Mando sending R5 out on this journey that Mando actually has to set up the visual so that Grogu can watch and track him to calm him down a little bit, which is kind of a cool little sequence. 
And Mando, finally, Mando agrees to go out and get him after the, the visuals sort of crap out on the Naboo Starfighter. And when he does, Mando walks out and Grogu pops up to watch him. Anything from this scene you want to talk about? No, uh, just I liked the, the visual coming through. Uh, I was wondering, why are you coming through the storm? You go around it, and you could, because we do see sunlight hitting the surface. Um, I really thought that storm was, like, full of acid or lightning or bats or something. They made that sound like the, the music got really ominous when we went through the clouds, then it just came out. And it's like, oh, you could have just gone around those clouds. Or they weren't ominous in the first place, and the music just tricked us. So I... I I am not mad about that, but that seemed like a you know movie maker trick to make us worried about something that was utterly unco- inconsequential. So I didn't like that part, but I'm picking really small nits to even bring it up. Yeah, uh, I think that was a little unrealistic. I think he probably would. No, thinking that the planet is as dangerous as he thinks it is, you probably wouldn't go through a storm. I agree with you there. Then we see Mando walk below and he sees the mines of Mandalore. He's attacked by something. It's multiple of them. We don't have the names of them yet. We get it later in the episode. He eventually pulls out the Darksaber. Interesting point on the Darksaber. It looks like he's having trouble wielding it. It looks like it's really heavy for him. But it does help him in the battle, and he's able to use the thing, use the Darksaber to kill the things that have attacked him. And Mando finds the droid, the R5 droid, and takes it back to the ship. And we get all of that from Grogu's perspective of the two coming back. He asks the droid for an analysis on the surface, and it is breathable. Lo and behold, it is a breathable surface. Bo-Katan is right. Mandalore is not cursed. Eh, eh, don't, don't speak so fast. Then we see Grogu in his pod following Mando into the mines. This time Mando has a blaster pulled. So two, two things. Um, one, what does he think cursed means? Just poisonous air? I think that, this up later. Like, are you sure it's not cursed? Look around a little bit. Like, but what does he think cursed means? I what think is he, one what of the, he even taught it means? I think one of the weirdly consistent things about the show is that Mando's not that bright. Like, he is a great fighter. He's resourceful. He is loyal. But he isn't overly educated. He makes a lot of mistakes. His understand, Like, I, I pointed out his loose understanding of how droids work in the last episode. He seems to have a pretty loose understanding of the general consensus about what Mandalore is and why he shouldn't go. Because I agree with you. Like he seems to have this very haha surface level understanding of what's wrong with the, with the planet where it's like in his mind, it's, it's quote cursed because it has poisonous gas on the surface. If it doesn't have poisonous gas on the surface, oh, lo and behold, everything is fine. And it's a very surface level understanding of this whole thing. And I feel like we see this a lot with Mando where like, I love the guy. We all love him. He's our protagonist, but he isn't the brightest guy. Like that's okay to say. So I'm trying to think, and I was trying to think, you know, the different ways that people talk about it being smart, you know, intelligence or wisdom or knowledge. And I'm not sure how dumb he is versus sheltered and under and, um, inconsistently educated. The guy speaks lots of languages. The guy can repair a lot of stuff. The guy has a lot of intellectually based skills. I think it's just he grew up in a cult. He grew up homeschooled in a cult. And so his knowledge of how droids work is like a kindergartner. His knowledge on uh, some things is just, just uneducated. 
I feel like when you say, when, when I say, and I experience this everywhere in life, when I say someone, some character, some person, somebody isn't smart, I feel like for most people, that strikes them as really harsh. And so most people then look at ways that that individual could be considered quote smart. Like I've, I've had instances where I say something, something, someone, some character isn't smart and somebody goes, Oh, well they have emotional intelligence or, Oh no, well they have, they're pretty intuitive, but they're not educated. It's like, agree with you. There are things that Mando is good at. He's, he's, like I said, he's, he's resourceful. He can problem solve, but I think it's okay to say that like, if you just are trying to apply the label of quote smart, well, you wouldn't give it to him. How many, how many hard headed fucking things have we seen him do in the two and a half seasons of this show? A so, lot. And also the fact that he is undereducated and doesn't have some of the basic knowledge about certain things that he's encountering, I think also adds to an overall lack of intelligence on his part. So he's stubborn and they let him make mistakes, but he, it's, he's not. He's not unclever. He's not unintuitive. He's not bad at intuiting things. He's not not clever. He's not bad. He's good at making plans. He has a lot of knowledge on a lot of things. You know, so he he knows many things in a lot of detail. Like being able to speak a lot of languages is related to smartness. That's part of it. I, I think maybe I think. I think he actually is smart. And so if you think he's smart, the, then you, well, the, the do you think this thing is... always was, was so strange to me, and I love it now because he's smart in so many ways, and it felt like just a black hole of dumbness. And that was that, that was that my was, next question: is if if you think he's smart, which I don't think he is, but if you think he's smart, then then you probably think that some of these things that he's not smart about are inconsistencies in the show. Is that right? So I would have except. Um, I really think it's he grew up homeschooled in a cult. He was taught the earth is flat, basically, kind of stuff like that. There's just some stuff that he's dumb about that might not make sense, but a combination of not learning about it enough, not being exposed to it enough, and being told things almost as religious truths over here's what droids do. You know, the first droid he ever really interacted with then became his best friend. I think he just had learned droids were bad, and then never interacted with droids. So I, I think it's just more of his sheltered upbringing makes him dumb in surprisingly uh, – he's got lots of blind spots. I think that's it. I think he's above average smart, but he's got some really huge, weird blind spots in his intelligence. I think that is another way of saying exactly what I was trying to say. Like, I, that's that's the – like. Maybe maybe by saying not smart, that conveys something that maybe I wasn't trying to convey. I mean, because I was trying to say exactly what you're saying, which yeah. is that there he obviously is resourceful, clever, able to problem solve, able to work himself out of situations. He does a lot of languages. There, I'm not saying the guy's dumb, but there are things he's not smart about. And that is weirdly consistent through the show, that you, that you will get moments where you're like, God damn it, Mando, do you not really know about this? Also, Jamie – Let's not use the world as flat thing. There's some really interesting videos out there. I don't know if you've, you've watched them, but there's some really interesting videos about the world. People who believe in that are, are all around the world. So, it's, you know. There's really interesting. Don't you love when people do that when they're like, well, look, there's some interesting information. I'm just asking questions. I'm just asking questions. Yeah, I don't that, love it. I'll be honest. Don't love it. Mando, not, not, not one Mando, little bit. Mando might be a I'm just asking questions guy when it comes to certain things. No, 
he doesn't ask questions. He tells you the truth and then he goes, goes for it. <laughs> so, uh, then when he asks the droid for, uh, then, then he, as he, as they, as they go down, we see the civic center and that is where Bo-Katan set to go. Then we see Mando uses jetpack. Oh, love when they use a jetpack. Love That's the so jetpack. Cool. So yeah. useful. Like, oh, I saw that. I was like, how the heck is he going to get down? Oh, forgot he had a jetpack. He can just elevator. Even more useful than his jetpack is Grogu's pod, yep. which is just super useful. Grogu's very active in this scene. He's looking around. He, uh, I think they, they are spending more and more money on the Grogu character. Uh, I think if you compare, I think it's a bit of frog in boiling water because I think most people don't see the difference. But if you take Grogu from the first two episodes of this series to how Grogu appears on screen in this episode, the amount of money they're spending on his little movements, facial expressions, ear twitches, eye movements is way, way, way higher now. And I am here for it. I love it. Happy, happy, joy, joy. So I think you're right. And I think that's probably why. It works in well. It's always nice when practicalities of a show work also with the in-lore, so hand-in-hand. Because what did we have when he was in those first few episodes? We had him coming from, like, trauma and isolation and PTSD. So he is opening up more emotionally, learning more about the world, feeling more secure. So it fits with the character that he would have been a lot more flat, a lot less reactive at the time. And also fits with, you know, what they were spending the money on, how good they were at, and what they had learned worked and didn't work. So I think you're right. That is probably mostly the money and practicality. Uh, but it goes so well with character development, too. I agree with that. And it, it, it aligns with Grogu being more of a partner as opposed to a passive passenger for Mando. Mm-hmm. In this episode, I think really, really we get the biggest indication we've gotten yet, or largest indication we've gotten yet in the show that Grogu is a partner with Mando, where he is there to help Mando. He is there to be a part of whatever Mando's, Mando's doing, as opposed to a thing to be protected at all times, which yes. is a really cool transition for the character. He started off as a fun MacGuffin. Like, that is what he yes. literally started yeah. as. Mm-hmm. Of, you know, cute. It Very is cute. the thing I need to investigate and deliver to somebody, and occasionally magic pops out of it. Plus some cuteness and some talking, but not, not it, some cuteness, a lot of cuteness. Well, 100% yeah, yeah. cuteness, 120% cuteness. <laughs> All right, fair enough. <laughs> so Amanda's telling Grogu they have to go down further. Grogu gives them a padu, padu. That's his first, I, I'm going to go ahead and call it. I'm doing it right here on Mango Talk Star Wars. Grogu has said his first word and it is padu. Padu what? is Grogu's first word. What does it mean? Unclear, but that's his first word. To, so I will say, Kids come up with weird words that they have invented, and it's probably some kind of weird conglomeration of what they think the right. It probably means is. dad to him. Yeah, my, he, yeah. My kid called water mambo for like six months. We still don't know why. Mambo meant water. Sure, you've invented the word mambo. That was one of his first words. So p- padu, sure padu. I'll, I'll, I'll take it. Padu, padu. He, he renamed. <laughs> Mandu lands on what looks like a, the floor of this mine, and Grogu's in tow. Mandu sees a helm, Mandalorian helmet in the ground. He pulls it out. Right at that time, something whoop, snaps up over him, hold, takes a hold of him, and captures him. It's a very large droid that snaps him up. Grogu sees the whole thing. Again, great Grogu expressions through this whole thing. His ears go down. He hides. He gets scared, but worried, but, you know, 
interested in what's going on with Mando, and Grogu follows as this thing carries Mando around. Mando can't see very much other than the ground below him. We get some POV shots from Mando's perspective. Then we see Grogu walking around following. I am struck in the scene by how worried Grogu is and how much this is something we never got in the earlier seasons, or at least the first season. The entire scene is from Grogu's perspective. Yeah, low on the ground, too. Yeah, you're getting his POV, you're getting his decision-making, which we can all intuit, you're getting his reactions, the noises he's making, and through his actions and facial expressions, you can, I feel like I can tell what Grogu's thinking and why he's doing what he's doing through the scene. Again, more of an active partner, less is it less of a piece of cargo, passive passenger. Yep, absolutely. We see the thing that is operating this droid, and it's actually a smaller droid, droid within a droid, with some sort of species inside of it. So there's some little organism that's not very big, that's in a droid, that's in a droid. That's what I've figured out with this thing. Is that what you got? Um, Maybe. Okay. So I actually had a conversation about this with no answer. Is there a biological thing inside it or not? Because we don't – I don't see the biological except the eyeball thing, which that could easily be like um, – oh, I forget the – there's a comic book series where a character has a TV for a head, and the TV head can have show stuff on it. But it could just be a picture of an eyeball. Like that could be its display. Are we sure it's biological? I, I think it probably is because it's, it's sucking out as vital essences or juices or something. But um, I assume it's biological and is harvesting him for its own food. That's Probably. what I took. Is that? It's, it, but whatever it is, it fits inside the head, as we later see. So it's either just the tiny brain. head droid, or it's a tiny, you know, like um, it's it's a Dalek basically. It's a tiny little worm inside a giant death machine robot. So maybe it's a worm, or maybe it's just a tiny droid. I couldn't tell. Shades of General Grievous here, where there is some yep. biological thing, something that's alive. It had two. It's using, using a droid apparatus to negotiate, navigate the world. And that, I like that's how kind of Grievous, what's going on here. I like how Grievous was right there as an example, and I went to Doctor Who anyway, even though we're on literally a Star Wars podcast. I'm, I'm amused and making fun of myself for having done that. <laughs> then we see uh, Grogu get out of his pod and start walking over toward this thing. It, now, why did he walk? Selfie, well, I guess I think he wanted to make less noise and 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 uh, this is what I, I assumed. I don't think it's perfectly clear, but I think he felt like he could hide more because yeah. he, he's a smaller presence while he's yeah. walking. He's because quieter he knew, in the pod, but he's bigger, so he can't. He because can, he, yeah, you can. Yeah, okay. He knew he was approaching to try to bust Mando out, so yeah. he knew he was going to call attention to himself. So the the least space he could take off to hide, probably the better, and I. It was, what struck me during this is there were moments in season one where I was intensely scared for Grogu. Like I thought, okay, this little thing is about to die. N- at no point, I was very scared for Mando in this episode, but at no point did I think Grogu was in real danger. Because I felt if this thing turned and focused on Grogu, he would just, he, he has learned the force to the point that he can defend himself at a level that is very, very advanced from where he used to be. And we see that later in the episode, but he just tosses old boy out of there like it's nothing. I was actually waiting for him to use uh, a power from the video game of stun droid, because that's a light power, um, a light side power. Uh, I was really thought he was just going to stun the droid and then, you know, 
be like, oh, you learned a lot more than I thought you did. Let's go. Uh, no, they didn't go that way. But I, I like the way they actually went. I was expecting him to just use his powers to stun the droid and win. Well, he starts to try to use his droid to bust man or use for, force powers to bust Mando out, but it makes a noise. The thing turns, focuses on Grogu, and Mando just says, go get Bogotan, basically, which is a very dad move because he doesn't want Grogu to sit and fight the thing, although he probably could. He would prefer man, Grogu go get reinforcements. So Grogu hears Papa, hears what Mando says, and he says, okay, let's go. And then we have this awesome Grogu chase scene where he flies in the pod, presses Grogu the button. Grogu chase scene is not a phrase I expected to hear. Take the fuck off in this thing. He's navigating it super adeptly, like doing a great fucking job. I just feel like the, the, they're showing us. It's show, not tell. They're showing us Grogu's advancement in these situations. And we, we got basically a whole new character at this point uh, because he's able to get out of there, get on the ship, get the astromech to take him back to bo All stuff that we never would have got from this character first two seasons. You know, they're sort of showing the whole he's been training for two years. He learned some stuff. Yeah, he's actually he leveled cool. up in your absence. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Cut to bo Her fancy droid tells her they have an unscheduled visitor. bo I'm going to call her Emo Bo-Katan. Uh, she wants to be left alone. She wants to sit and listen to Avril Lavigne with her Hot Topic <laughs> t-shirt on, and she wants to watch anime and not be talked to by anybody. She doesn't want any co- any company at all. She says, let's get rid of him once and for all. She goes out and starts chewing Mando out. But guess what? Mando's not there. She says, maybe I didn't make myself clear. I want to be left alone. But then she's a Grogu. And then, whoop, changes completely. She says, what happened to him? Grogu looks concerned. Bo says, to her fancy droid, download the astromech, find out where they were, cut to Bo flying into Mandalore with Grogu in her ship, and cool scene there. It looks like like she's really excited to be – like there's a moment in her face where she looks excited to be flying into Mandalore, at least looks interested. But what struck me about this entire scene is, A, Grogu's independence, his ability to do things that we didn't see before that fundamentally changes the storytelling that they can do because now Mando has a capable partner, and two – I think there was a lot of speculation in the fan base, and I didn't know which way they were going to go with this, that Bogotan was going to be adversarial with Mando, especially the fact he had the Darksaber and that he could command Mando. It, it looks like they have swung hard the other way, that not only are they not enemies. At the end of this episode, I am about convinced they're romantic interests. Like, I think that they're going to be long-term partners. Like, Bo is very... Dedicated to Mando here. She risked her life multiple times to try to save him. Why else would she do that other than she cares about him? So I had a conversation about this. Uh, there's there's two ways for her to see him. A three if you can't pain in the ass. But the two ways, he is either her subject and kind of the only person who listens to her these days apparently. Because she's Good point. sort of the ruler of Mandalore and nobody to rule. And he at least wants to join up with her. Even if she said there's nothing to join, go home. So he is sort of her follower and responsibility. And also, depending on how much she really believes in the Darksaber, this is her king. So subject or king and pain in the ass, I think, has averaged out to friend that you get to make fun of. Um, I'm not really sure, but I, I do like that. And it does make sense. Who else does she really have? Like, she does want to be left alone, but she really does want him to be okay. And she is lonely. I mean, most people who sit in the dark listening to Avril Lavigne, actually, they're not trying to cry for help, 
But if there was something there, it would make them happier in their heart after they got over it. Uh, that's where she is. Like, she's with somebody now, and against her will, she is enjoying having company and being able to talk with somebody who's not her droid about Mandalore, about what somebody who's interested in it, who wants to hear about her coronation that she doesn't want to talk about, but she kind of wants to talk about. Here's the thing. If you're a fan, not you, not you, Jimmy, but the, 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 the listener, if you're a fan of the show mm-hmm. and you're expecting more character development to get you to a point where Bo-Katan and Mando are teammates at a minimum and at maximum romantic partners, you're not going to get it. They've already get this. This is how this show tells the story. Like they have given you what they think is enough. Going forward, Bo and Mando are partners. Like, just accept it. Like, I don't think they're going to give us any more development, any more explanation about that. They're just together. That's what it seems like to me. They've saved each other's lives. They've bonded. They have a common cause. She's seen his face, right? So she knows he's a good-looking guy. True. True. They get to the surface. They get to the Citadel. She tells Grogu, it didn't always look like this. Another thing that strikes me in the episode, uh, how much Bo-Katan, who is a prickly person, we've seen her be very prickly on many occasions, is charmed by Grogu. It seems like Grogu wins votes everywhere he goes. She's just charmed by this creature, and she interacts with it. She's telling him stories. She's trying to uh, hype him up. Uh, at times she is comforting him. It's like she's already bonded with Grogu. She, she already likes him. So if you ignore completely the cuteness factor, like take that entirely oh. out. Oh. No, no, take that out for the moment. So hard. Sincerity and being a good listener can get you a long way with people. Like that, just those two, people do respond well if you seem to be sincerely interested in what they're saying. Grogu's a great listener because he can't talk, but he's not dumb, and he's, he seems utterly sincere in every single thing that he says and does and every single sentient creature he puts in his mouth and eats. He is feeling it in his heart, and he'll tell you. So anyway, I think you're right, and it's unsurprising. She does not have many people that listen to her, and now she has a unsarcastic, unquestioning likes her in some amount and good at listening. You're right. But, but she's, she's effectively gushing as far as she's concerned. Uh, she, uh, she's, she's emoting and talking, telling stories that she wouldn't tell anybody because he's a good listener. And also who's he going to tell? Sorry. I was just listening to you and thinking about how much I like you as a friend. And oh, I was just man. listening and listening and I was just doing a bunch of listening. Now you're, that's an uncle Jamie out there to the kids. You're absolutely right. If you just like we live in a society that like the vast majority of people, I'm going to peg it at 90 percent of people talk in are in conversations waiting for their turn to talk. Like most people are just waiting for you to shut up so that they can say what they want to say. Grogu is not that. And that's probably refreshing. He is cute. That adds to it. He also I think that the the connection between Mando and Grogu can inspire people. I think that when they see those two, how connected they are, how committed to each other they are, that probably inspires something in Bo-Katan, especially since she, she aspires to leadership, and that level of loyalty is probably something that she likes and resonates with. So there's a lot of things here for her to like, 
But ultimately, it, it results in her talking to Grogu as warmly as we have seen her talk to any character. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she, I mean, she's even a little bit more gruff and, and rough with Mando and their conversations this episode. But with Grogu, she's locked in. So she says, okay, kid, I'm going to need to guide me down there. Can you do that? Grogu seems like he can. Takes off in his pod. Bo is in tow. The astromech droid then locks in on her ship and opens up the camera. I'm not sure what the droid was doing there, why it was watching her as she went off, why they felt the need to throw that little scene in there where the droid opens up the camera to watch Bo and Grogu walk off. I, I didn't really get that. Um, I think it's because the droid is nervous and thinks it's left alone. I think it's just emphasizing this droid is very scared. Okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. They go in, Grogu leading, but Bo very closely following. She takes her helmet off. She looks down onto the mines. She says, this was once a beautiful civilization. My family ruled it all. Now it's a tome. Let's go. She puts her helmet back on. She's the jetpack to fly down. Grogu following closely in his pod. She lands and they advance. We hear some fast breathing from Grogu, telling me he's a little anxious. Bo catches on to this. She turns to him and says, I know that you're frightened, but I need you to guide me to him. That level of reassurance that being noticing his emotions, that he's concerned, talking to him, reassuring him, is the softest touch we've ever seen from Bo-Katan in anything, anywhere. She's going to be such a good mom someday. We've never, like, in, in any media I have ever seen Bo-Katan in, cartoons, this, comics, she's never been this deft and soft with someone. It's like, it's really interesting to watch her operate with Grogu because it's well, not I, common for her. You could say that it's just she's good with people and she's usually surrounds herself with rough people. So she either should, or at least can be rough with them. And Grogu, she's emotional intelligence. She's a good leader. She can tell when somebody's like breaking or weak or soft. And yeah. so mm-hmm. she knows how to be what her people need her to be. And she's just effective at getting what she wants out of them. Maybe it does seem like she cares about him also. And isn't just look I can't tell you to suck it up, Buttercup, because you're weak, but suck it up, Buttercup. It does seem like more than just that. I but agree. But it does also show she's good. She has, you know, emotional intelligence. She is good at being a leader, because being a leader means of whoever you got. You, you, you figure out how to lead the team you, you have. I agree with both those points, that, that she probably has more advanced emotional intelligence than we see a lot of times, and you have to be that if you aspire to leadership. And two – She's probably just genuinely likes Grogu for all the reasons that we've stated before. I think there's Wait. there's a genuine concern there. Bring the cuteness back now, because the cuteness matters. Like, I, I put that on the side. Let's oh, make sure yeah. we have the cuteness back, because it's important. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, well, also, in my I, basement I right know. now, there's this, in my basement right now, there's a shrine to Grogu. I've got, I've okay. got a, a shelf that's got at least 50 to 60 figurines of Grogu on. That's, that's cute. Um, it is also notable. She is always in a very tenuous situation as far as leadership and power goes in this show, at least. And so she can't be warm and fuzzy, naturally, at least with Mando, because he is a threat to her power. In some ways, she hates him because he he undermined and interrupted not through. You know, she also likes him. It wasn't his fault. He wasn't trying to. But he ruined everything that she had planned and is the biggest obstacle to her power right now. Grogu is not a threat to her power at all. She does not no. have to battle with Grogu. Grogu doing well does not undermine her ever. So that's probably refreshing to her, to have somebody worth being around who 
she doesn't have to play any games with. She probably just likes it. Yeah, and she doesn't quite grow with the Jedi, right? Because she goes, she goes right into this discussion. She says, I knew quite a few Jedi, you know, I don't know what they taught you about us, but there was a time we got along quite well. This is true. Fought side by side. How good are you with the Force? You must be quite good at it if you got back to me all alone. It's true. She stops, pulls out her blaster, and then the ceiling collapses. I was just thinking she was talking about how good Grogu was with the Force. I think that Grogu is the most advanced Force user Bo has ever seen or been around except for Darth Maul. I think he's right. number number two on the list. Yeah. So, but it, it, she doesn't know it yet. But he's the, he's a more advanced force user than she's probably ever seen. And she and the more she pals around with Mando, she'll see it eventually. So a joke that I'm also serious about because I didn't see her in the other stuff. The other force users that she saw could they only move half of a peanut? Because he can only move a peanut. Uh, he throws some fucking lackey out on his ass. Out. She didn't see that though. Yes, yeah, so I'm saying is that she she will see it eventually. Okay. I, she has not seen it yet. As so that, that, that yeah that sorry if I wasn't clear that was my point is that she's unaware of this, but he's more advanced than pretty much everybody she's ever seen, and I think she will get a flavor for it eventually. Yeah. Okay. Um. She stops, pulls out her blasters, and then the ceiling collapses. More of these things attack. Bo fights them. You've seen all kinds of Mandalorian weapons, including a shield that looked pretty cool. She finishes and says, did you think your dad was the only Mandalorian? Kind of hyping herself up a little bit. Um, she says those are Alamites. So now we got a name for what these things are. She explains they used to live on the surface, but they don't anymore. Although she wonders if they survived. Oh, what else could have survived, I wonder. So I think this is a good time for you to do this little side plot of this place looks a lot less looted than I would have expected. What are these things living on? What is the little dragon thing living on? It could be, you know, because what is this? You said like 20 years or something? Like 15, yeah. F- 15 years? Okay. They could still be living off of canned goods and cannibalism. Like, we don't know. Oh, the but, Last of Us situation. They're eating some Chef Boyardee and eating other people. Right. Like, that might be all it is after 15 years of a whole planet and very few things alive. But these are large, muscular uh, intelligent beings, that burns a lot of calories. That puts them high on a food chain. That suggests that there are uh, herbivores, and that suggests there are plants, like, or they're just scavenging the leftover food. But this place looks a lot less looted than I would have thought. Um, and I think it means that there must be, like, lots of plants growing somewhere. Well, right. if, the, if the narrative has gotten out there that the, the surface is poison and if you go there, you die, et cetera, et cetera, it would make sense it's not looted because nobody ever went there to loot it. Because The Empire would have looted it, though. Or well, she would have gone and looted it. Like, she would have gone to find out. Is it actually you know, cursed or poisoned? And you know, It might have been unpleasant, but she would have done it at least once to go try to find survivors, find her family, whatever. Sure. She and she might have. I don't know that we we, we know that she hasn't, uh, but she's only one person. I mean, she's not going to loot the entire planet. And but, and I, the fact the Empire didn't, that's interesting. And I, I think that that merits more discussion. Like, what did the Empire do after the Night of a Thousand Tears? Did they stay, loot the cities, take as much as they could or did they just bounce? It's hard to say. Did Mando's parents die in that purge? I thought it was a different. Didn't we get that in season two? It was a different thing. Well, we got well, a I don't think it was. A, it was I don't think it was, it was a night of a thousand tears. But it was a different thing. Well, it, it was. It was a different city. But if you if you grew up on that moon, 
like the purge might have hit the moons also. It's just like all the Mandalorians, uh, and they only melted the planet. But sure, you know, it would have made sense for them. And it looks like it fits the timeline. Fifteen ish years ago, he would have been a little kid. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I just don't, I don't know. know. I don't know the answer to that. That's a good question, though. Um, so we cut to the odd thing in the droid body working. He stabs Mando with something and starts draining, I guess, some of Mando's blood. He Let me see a shot of Bo-Katan, who comes up behind and starts attacking. And, and she good timing, because she's attacking right as the thing is sucking Mando's blood out. I don't know how long it could suck whatever it was taking out of Mando without killing him, but it probably wouldn't have been that long. So she had good timing. The thing shoots a laser at Bo that works, knocks her down. But she eventually grabs the dark saber, and I tell you what, Jamie, she can wield that dark saber a heck of a lot better than Mando can. Oh remind my me, gosh, can she? Remind me and teach any viewers who didn't watch Boba Fett, why is it heavy for him and not for her? Because I don't fully remember, and I, I just I didn't look it up because I wanted you to be able to tell us for the you know one listener who didn't watch Boba Fett. Well. I mean, I, I don't think we got a perfect explanation of it in Boba Fett, but the explanation was that it was the it's e, it's easier for those that should rule to wield the dark saber. It is the sword and the stone. It is it responds to the person who should be the leader, should be strong, et cetera, et cetera. So like. I, 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 you teed me up here, but I honestly don't love it because it's not super consistent with what we know of the universe. Like how, for all we know, this thing doesn't have any force presence or whatever. So why would it, why would it be able to tell as a, as a fucking entity, a, a, a non-sentient being who is more capable or ready to rule Mandalore. But that's the sort of folk lesson around the Darksaber, which is if you are to be the ruler of Mandalore, if you're ready to be the ruler of Mandalore, if you're appropriate ruler of Mandalore, you can wield the Darksaber easier than somebody who isn't. And that's why Mando struggles with it. Uh, Moff Gideon struggled with it, but Bo-Katan flips that motherfucker around like it's lightweight. Yeah, I think... I, 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 I think that it clearly has to have some kind of force connection sentience. It's an intelligent item, you know, to use the Dungeons and Dragons phrases. Gotta be, right? It has to be, because I, I think of it not as much as who's actually good to rule Mandalore, like that might be the way that it is, is done. It seems like ambition or charisma is the thing that's necessary, you know, a force of will. That's needed, um, and it, it, you know a, a a will to rule maybe that it responds. But wouldn't to. Moff Gideon Moff Gideon be able to wield it pretty easily in those with that? He was. I mean, he was able to go toe to toe with Mandalorian in a in a sword fight. But it was a little heavier for him than it is. But but like he was I mean, he was kind of struggling with it in a way that I mean, I was struck by how Bo just flips that motherfucker around. Like it's easier for her than anybody. Well, she she's just that good, and she, in her bones, has been trained her whole life to have the will to rule and tried to do it. Moff Gideon, you know, he has a lot of ambition. Does he really want to personally rule? I don't know. Maybe it's the whole how much do you have? Because hmm. in the okay. in Boba Fett, like there was that. like one scene when Mando figured out how to use it or something. He used it better once, got in the right mindset or something. So I think the idea that it is a – Force-sensitive, sentient 
thing, an intelligent sword, it's magic, whatever. It responds well to those. It, it wants to be wielded by people who will rule. It, it responds well to the will to rule, the ambition, the force of will or charisma of enforcing your wishes upon the world around you. Um, it has to be able to sense that somehow. You know, I'm thinking if Mando actually, maybe, maybe he is dumb. If he were really smart, he'd practice with this thing because it's useful to be good at it. And if he did, he'd figure out, turn it off, move it where you want it, turn it on real fast. Like that would be way more effective. Move it fast when it's not on, when it's just a stick. And then you just have poking holes in things. That would be way better. Because it only moves slow when it's extended. Anyway. So I'm reading this on the Darksaber's Wikipedia. After giving a brief exposition on the weapon's history and significance in Mandalorian culture and seemingly agreeing to let Jinjarin take Grogu in exchange for never crossing paths again, Gideon attempted to strike him down from behind with the Darksaber, but was foiled by the Mandalorian's Beskar-plated jetpack, blah, 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 blah. He then engaged Jinjarin in a duel. That's when Jinjarin took it. All right, so then we have... We'll fix this in posts. fine. The armor, the armor also trained Jinjarin in using the weapon, telling him that he was fighting against the Darksaber rather than his opponent making the weapon seem heavier in nature the more he swung. So that's what we got from Boba Fett, which was, you're fighting, like, you know, sort of ambiguity, that's sort of an ambiguous statement. You're fighting against it rather than with it. Yeah, you got to follow it. It doesn't seem like you have to follow the sword's lead, but if you're not um, of a similar alignment with it, if you're not acting in accordance with it, it's just stubborn. And it's like, no, uh, you know, you, Look, look it, it, it's, it's a Charizard, and you're a level one trainer. You don't have the badges. You can't make it do what you want. It's confused, and it hurt itself, and it hurt your foot. So, good so, luck. So, Boba bring every single science fiction fantasy game and toy instead of ever actually making a Star Wars reference. That's my new plan. Oh, okay. Yeah, All right. Maybe. What is it? Live long and prosper? Whatever. Um, oh, yeah. No, that's from Firefly. <laughs> she, she eventually... Um, is able to dispatch this droid, but the droid, the thing inside the droid's not dead, and then climbs into the much bigger droid and starts to prep to attack her. Bo starts talking to Mando. Mando says, behind you. She turns around and she sees the big droid, right? But again, she's got the Darksaber. She's got her shield. She's hell on wheels with the Darksaber and the shield, and she makes short work of this very large droid. All of, all of your weapons Indeed. are just fodder for the Darksaber. If it gets close to me, it disappears. Oh, look, now you're out of weapons. Yeah, she's extremely good with it. And so cut to Bo, Grogu, and Mando sitting over a fire. Mando says, what happened? And she says, I saved your life. She's, she, this is the sort of – she's friendly, but she is a little prickly. Uh, Bogotan that we get here. He says, how did you find me? She says, your kid. He's tougher than he looks, and he's quite the navigator. Mando says, you're right. Mandalore is not cursed. She's like, was I? Look around. There's nothing left. A great society is now a memory. I once ruled here for a brief time, which we saw in the Clone Wars. Now it is destroyed. Nothing to cling to but ashes. Mandu asks what she's giving him. She says, you've never eaten pog soup, and you appreciate the irony. Any Mandalorian worth their armor was raised on this stuff since they were Grogu's size. Mandu explained that he's not going with her. She's like, 
what? He's like, I must continue to the man's of Mandalore so that I may be redeemed. Bo calls it children's story, says there's nothing magic about the waters. And then Mando kind of breaks through the bullshit. And I think he kind of says what I think a lot of people in real life say about religion, which is I'm not willing to argue the individual points of facts with you. Like that uh, that's kind of murky for me that gets sideways when you start trying to point out like is this specific thing in the Quran or the Bible or the whatever true and instead they say what without the creed what are we what do we stand for in essence the creed gives me purpose it gives me something to live for and that is in and of, of itself worthy of following not necessarily is it true that the living waters are magic, et cetera? That part he's not interested in arguing about. Instead, he wants to say, look, the creed gives me a reason for being. Yeah, you might be right. Not to get too far into religion. Uh, I actually had a conversation with a, a, a um, you know, priest, not called priest, but uh, a Hindu. And I, I asked him, you know, these stories, um, does your religion teach, do you think they are literally true, that this actually happened, that a guy did this? And he despite having done this for his whole life and telling stories like he's great. He's like, that's an interesting question. And I've never really thought about it that way. And just the idea of that's not the important part, like so much, not the important yeah. part. And that's something which, you know, the traditions that I grew up with put heavy importance on that part of the, let's talk about the actual facts and what happened. And could you have been there for it instead of the, why are we doing all of this? Like, what, what is this for us? And he's kind of getting the, like, you know, it matters to me. And yeah, I and I feel the fact like that it matters to me, and you can't change the fact that it matters to me. Yeah, and I feel like most religions are most accessible and recruit best when they are of Mando's flavor, which is, hey, this is a basically a set of values that we follow. It's a general guideline for living. It's a creed. It's a way of life. It's something that gives us purpose. It unifies us, but. You want to argue if this person lived in 15 AD or 25 AD. Like, let's, let's get off of that, right? And so that's kind of what Manda is doing here. And I think it's really effective with Bo because she backs off of this whole, like, calling it childish and calling it this and that. Cause I think she understands what he's trying to say, which is, look, the, doing all of this gives me that raison d'etre, right? That reason to be that, that thing that I get up in the morning for. And by the way, that's something that it looks like Bo doesn't have. I mean, when we see her, she's like emo on a fucking throne by herself with nothing to do all day. She doesn't have a reason to be. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's something that maybe it's a good lesson for Bo here. We have either made all of our audience very happy or very angry. We should move on. But but I think you're right. I don't, I don't give a shit. I mean, I, I, I think we're I think I think. Wait, well, you, you, that's you why the audience better. What is Spencer going to think? I assume he is the entire audience. and We have one person listening each week. What is he? Uh, a few more than one. I mean, I, I think that that's why this. <laughs> there are dozens of us. There are, there are a ton of religious references in the first three episodes, first two episodes of the show. I think we'd be remiss not making the connection and talking about it. I All mean, right. the fact is he's going to, in essence, get baptized to remove sins from himself. Like, this is the religious imagery is off the charts. Like you got to discuss about which real world religions would be improved by the use of helmets or all of them. The all dark saber. 
I like oh, it. Dark, hey, dark you, sabologists. I'll tell you this. When they when they select a new pope, I've seen it twice now in my life where they selected a new pope. There's still guys with swords there out front with their with their old school swords. Like like it, it really does look like a scene out of like out of the last kingdom or something when they select a new pope. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. So Bo says, look, I'll go with you. I'll show you the way, which really did kind of shock me because I thought when he said, I'm going on to the living waters, even though I just about died and you had to come here to save me, et cetera. I put, I put Grogu at risk, all of this. I thought she'd be over it, but instead she goes, okay, well, I'll just go with you and I'll show you the way. Like, and it seemed to me like Bo saying, all right, I'm not going to be able to convince this guy not to do this. And it's important to me. He stay alive. So I'm, Going with it. So, so I thought they were setting something up here that they weren't doing, and it, it actually confused me because I felt so strongly they were setting up. Because then he says, "Like, thank you." And she says, "Don't thank me till you see him." I really expected it to be a huge disappointment, even to him. Like the waters were mud or dry or just super. Like she's like, in this moment, it didn't seem as much like, "Well, I'm going to go protect you." As it's easy, I can show you. This is going to be interesting, seeing you get all disillusioned and underwhelmed. That's what it seemed like to me. And then he got there, and no, they're about what I would have expected. They're waters, and he gets an emotional reaction to them. And they are living. (laughs) They are living waters. Yeah, I I don't know. I think it reinforced kind of what I just said, which was that – I think instead, so that that's it. That would have been an interesting way to take it, right? If she got he'd got there, they're they're mud or they're polluted. That would that would have been a great way to do that. But instead, I think they went the way which is that. Bo, in essence, hears his explanation of why he follows the creed. I think it makes sense to her, this idea of purpose, of uniting people behind a common set of values. And I think she goes, you know what? I'll just I'll go with you to make sure you don't die, basically. You know what? That really would be the best argument for her because she is nothing if not practical. And she is basically saying, look, these myths are impractical. And he says, no, they motivate. They motivate me. They're the most practical things on Earth. And she's that's like, why, oh, like, well, yeah, that's how so. I was trying right. to explain it earlier. Like, that's why when you were like, you, you, you made the joke that we might have offended our audience. I was kind of like, I was kind of thinking to myself, like, well, I, I know Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy's joking there, but at the same time, I'm like, did we? Because like, I, I was, I was kind of copying to the fact that like, what, what religion does is it does do exactly what M- Mando's talking about for a lot of people. It's a, it's a reason to get up in the morning. It's a thing to believe in. It's a common set of values. It unites people. It gets people all in the same room with shared interests on Sunday mornings or Sunday afternoons or whatever. Like, this is super relatable, his concept of religion to like what we see in religion now. And I think it's ultimately a positive message and it resonates with Bo clearly. I, I think you're right. It's a positive message. It, it is the whole, you know, the idea that religion serves people as opposed to being objectively true is something which a lot of people, a younger myself included, would have prickled at, which is kind of why I said it. Not to get too much into myself or religion, but it actually it's not as um, uncontroversial a stance, I think, as it might seem. But I think it is very effective for the scene, very effective for talking to Bokatan, and you know, not incorrect. Yeah, and that's that. That's clearly the area of focus that is going to resonate with Bo and probably many more of the Mandalorians who are not immediately in this sect, right? Yeah. Like if they're going to rally around, because I th- I don't think Mando's going to let go of the creed, and I also, but I, so because I think here's what we're heading. I don't think Mando's going to let go of the creed, and I also think that Mando is going to be some sort of leader of Mandalore, and so I think his version of 
this religion is going to be spread like more than the armorer is doing. This is just my prediction. And I think he's going to do it through the way he just did it here with, with Bo, which is to explain this is our common set of values. This is the thing that unifies us. This is the thing that stops our people from fighting each other the way that Bo explains they've been doing all this time. And so I think, I think we're going to hear more of this message as the season goes on is my guess. So again, to, to talk out of my ass a little bit about a religion that I'm not a part of, but seems really relevant. I've heard from people who say, you know, I am Jewish, but I don't keep all the rules. It's like, well, then how are you Jewish? It's like, I did, I stutter. Like, it's still important to me. Like, I, or I do follow the rules. No, that was what was like. I read from somebody. They were saying, I follow the rules even though I'm an atheist. Like, he was an atheist yeah. Jewish guy and he followed all the Jewish rules. And I know, like, I know some why? Of people, and he's yeah. like, I don't even know how to answer that question. It seems pretty self evident to me. Like, yep. it's important to me, even if I don't think that there's somebody supernatural judging me about it. I do it because I like the ritual, because I like the rules, because yeah. I like the message and the guidance and whatever. Like, it's kind of like that where he's saying, I don't care if they're not magical. Doing this is a way that I show atonement for rules. If the rules were stupid, I don't care. I broke the rules of my club and disrespected them. And the way I show respect is by going through an arduous ordeal, arbitrary or otherwise, to show my repentance for not following and respecting the things that my friends respect. And they'll respect me for it. That's great. You don't even need the religion part for it. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's a, it's a, yeah. I know people like that too. Uh, right. Next time you leave me hanging, you must go and get me a flower from Canada. Lee. That, that, next time you leave me hanging, you gotta give me a flower from Canada. I don't care what flower. As long as it keeps us united in one common purpose. Uh, but you gotta take it with your own hands. It's hard, it's hard to believe that people used to live there. The Empire set up, this is the, the Empire set up the place. <laughs> live in Canada. People used to live in Canada. Can you believe it? What? The, this is, that was before the Cordyceps. The Empire set out to punish us, to whip away our memory. It must, it must, and he says it must pain you to see it like this after witness its beauty. This is when Bo goes into this whole thing about, no, what really pains her is seeing its own, her own people fight each other like they do. She says that they are here. Mando. Thanks a lot, man. The entrance to the mines of Mandalore, she says the living waters are in the chamber below. Bo says she wants she once was there as a child. She got in the waters, recited the creed, the whole thing. She says it was for theater, for their subjects. This is the language that Bo uses repeatedly. Now, she uses it in the Clone Wars, that gets her in trouble. Where she uses the, for our subjects. She refers to the people of Mandalore as her subjects. She, she really does view herself as a traditional archetypal, like, royal family, like gifted by birth type thing. And I think that the pe- the Mandalorians that she's interacted with have always bristled at that. And they have instead responded to her showing pure leadership, which makes sense, right? Like this idea of I rule you because of my birth might not resonate as much as I can be your leader because look at all the things I can do. And I always, I think that that's a tension we're going to see in Bogotan as she goes forward. So Mando says her father sounds interesting, and she says he was a great man. He died defending Mandalore. Both seem still very upset about that. They get there, Mando says, this is the way. Bo then looks at Grogu and says, what are you looking at? So her, her and Grogu kind of going back and forth. Pretty funny. Um, she says, here you go, the living waters. Hold on. I want you to get the full tour. So then she recites this thing that looks like she's reading from the wall. Is that correct? It looks like yeah, something she's reading. 
She says, according to ancient folklore, the mines were once a mythosaur lair. Mandalore, the great, is said to have tamed the mythical beasts. It is from these uh, legends that the skull signet was adopted and became the symbol for our planet. So that big skull signet of the, the Mandalorians, that's where this came from. It's a mythosaur. She asks Din if he is all right. He takes off his cape, starts to undress, keeps the keeps the mask on, though, keeps the helmet on. Grogu is watching on, looking at Bo. Bo looks at Grogu and smiles. Grogu, uh, Mandu then goes into the water. We get the Mandalorian music in the background. He starts to creed. I swear on my name and the names of the ancestors that I shall walk the way of the Mandalore and the words, the creed shall be forever forged in my heart. And then, whoop, he gets pulled down. And when he gets pulled down, Bo, I would like to point out, doesn't hesitate for a fucking second. No remote hesitation to put her life on the line to go save Mando. She jumps in. Didn't know her jetpack worked underwater. That's a very cool feature. Uses the jetpack to go down to get Mando. She gets him. She pulls him up on the way out. She, not Mando, it seems. She sees the mythosaur, not Mando. And then if you're watching it with your subtitles on, you know that because when the mythosaur comes on our screen, we see on the subtitles, it says Bo-Katan gasps. So there's nothing about Mando's reaction at all. Then we get to the crop top. Grogu seems happy to see them. Mando coughs. Bo seems shocked. End of episode. We got a mythosaur. Woo! So I, I loved this part. I loved a lot about it. Um, first, I so I thought that he was getting pulled under by something. We've had watchers in the water. We've had stuff pull people into water. I thought this would I happen he went down so fast. I find it delicious and goes in line with the whole, no, Din Djarin's kind of dumb. He went in the water in full plate armor and didn't pay attention to where the edge is. He fell because of gravity. Nothing was holding him down there. He just fell. I love is it. That, is that true? Yeah. Well, there was nothing attached to him. She didn't shoot anything underwater. She didn't untangle him from a rope. He went all the way down. I thought the mythosaur just pulled him down. The mythosaur was like sleeping. It wasn't moving. Do you think that thing lets go? I thought it yanked him down and let him go. Am I it stupid? Was, it was big and it was fast. And if it was, I don't think so. I think he just fell. Um, which so a if he just fell, fucking hilarious and perfect. the best. I, I I hope that's true. I didn't get that on my well, viewing. I'd be interested. He was to hear buried in the sense. silt. You you think the thing pulled him down, buried him in the silt, and then left before she yeah. could get there? Yeah, I like think saving him for later. That's the yeah, because it did take there. her. It took her a while to get down there. She wasn't down there immediately. So yeah, I think something pulled her down. It's possible, mm-hmm. and that's what I thought was happening at the time. But afterwards, it didn't seem like there was other tentacles or arms around. She saw the one thing, but it seemed to just be like sleeping and watching her. Um, it looked like she woke it up with her flashlight, um, and he did not seem to have anything that was attached to him, and we didn't see anything also, flee. It, it's also not an either or, right? Because it's not it's not he either fell with his armor on and just went to the bottom or a mythosaur. It could have been something else. Yeah, I mean there's a lot down, of shit. Pulled in this out water. and then dropped him. Yeah, a lot of shit in this water. There's something that could have maybe pulled him over the edge and yeah. then his armor carried him all oh, the way down. I, I am one hundred percent believing my headcanon, because I think it's accurate. He actually just walked off the edge because he was not paying attention and he went into thousand foot deep water in plate armor you don't wear plate armor on a ship and this is why um if so the next the start of the next episode needs to be like the start of the like the odd couple all in the family just like Bo giving him 
sitcom levels of shit for being an idiot. Yep. If he's if he really fell and she had to go all the way down there to get his ass just because he he was in with heavy armor. Because he did take his jetpack off first. He wore now, most question, of his armor. Question for you on the jetpack working underwater. That doesn't seem right, does it? It works in space. But would it? Why would it work? How could it work in water? Um. So ordinary jets. Need... Ordinary jets do jet fuel combustion with atmos with air. So you're right. Most ordinary right. jetpacks use air. Now, if you wanted it to work in space, your jetpack would have an oxygen tank on one side. That would be a really bad idea if you went into fights and you have an oxygen tank that can pop and explode. But he said he could pressurize his helmet so they at least have some oxygen tanks on board with them sometimes. Uh, there's also magic, and there's also science fiction, and that's what I think it is. quantum things and nuclear things. So it could, but you are right. Norm, normal jet engines need oxygen. Yeah, um, that's that's what I thought. But, but he um, took it, he took it off first, which is also part of why I think uh, he just fell. Because if he had it and just fell, he would have just flown back up. And if he, I don't know, he he didn't seem to be shooting at anything or like fighting back very well. Um, the the second thing I did like, she is quick in every sense of the word quick. She is smart and clever. She immediately responded to jump in, even though she was not currently in fight or flight mode. She was reading and chilling and amused sort of a little reverent a little amused watching him have his moment and then boom she's going and she has her headline on trying to find him and she can't because it's murky and everything and she's smart enough to realize i can't just keep looking turn off my headlight so i can see his headlight she thought of that while searching while underwater going 100 miles an hour she's quick she's just smart so let me go ahead and say this spencer taught me the term shipping you know what that means which which term Shipping? Oh, yes. I'm, I'm aware. Okay. I'm shipping Mando and Bo. Okay. Bo, Bo would not be that fast to jump in the water unless she had an emotional concern about him that goes beyond he's just another Mandalorian. Like, she, I'm, I'm, as a world-renowned Bo-Katan expert that I am, which we all know, and that's that's above reproach. I am telling you, Bo-Katan is in love with Mando, and they are going to be in love forever and make a lot of babies and have a great I, life. I'm going to undermine this fact. I'm going to, I'm going to say, you, you say this is part of how you know. I'm going to undermine the fact that's your current linchpin for your certainty. Where was the Darksaber? When what? When he went underwater. With him. Yeah, yeah. So, so if she hated him, she would have done the same thing. The so dark I understand himself. you have a really cynical heart, and you're you're, you're dark, and you I'm listen to Avril Lavigne, and you like Hot Topic. But look, let me I've explain moved on something. To Paramore, I'm much more sophisticated. I look. I don't know if you caught earlier when I said that I was a world-renowned Bogotan expert. All right. I, did you catch that when I said I was a world-renowned? I, I, I did, expert? and I'm wondering okay. what would she do if a random stranger with the dark saber tied to his belt fell into the bottomless pit. And I think it, it is, go get them. I think she was going after Mando. I honestly do. I don't, because if she was that concerned about the Darksaber, then she would have tried to get the Darksaber from Mando when he was futzing around the universe for two fucking years. So I, I have a this. I, He's I had it for two years. I have, I, have a part, I have a theory and a question about that. My theory is, why, why will she not fight him for the Darksaber? One of two. One, it's 
just it's not how it works. Like a Mandalorian has it, therefore she can't, you know, do a coup. It it only works if you're taking it from like a non Mandalorian or something. That's that's theory one. Or theory two of her whole idea of Mandalorians shouldn't fight each other. Like it's so much against her code that she cannot justify even for her own power and reuniting Mandalore. She can't go and kill another Mandalorian for the Darksaber and build her empire on infighting and lies. Or, so, or, or she loves him and love actually wants him. to have his babies, and that's why she doesn't want to kill she's him. She's in love with him. She's in love. Right. It's, it's okay. It, it's okay for in Star Wars there to be some, some love. The original series had it. Le, Leia, uh, Leia and Han were in love. Le, oh, we had, wait, we had a Leia and Luke. I, I, did we watch the same episode four and five? That was pretty gross. Uh, yeah. I, She's in uh, love with him, and that's okay. We don't need to shy away from that. It doesn't make Bo weak. As a matter no. of fact, I think it makes her strong because she's capable of this type of emotion. Hey, I, Shout I'm out Bo-Katan. Said, I love Bo-Katan. She loves Mando. All I'm the one who said if they get married, it solves all of their rulership problems. They can just rule Mandalore together. She, um, that's what's going to happen. And by the way, she's going to legally adopt Grogu, and it's going to be awesome. Yeah. So my second question. Mando just lost the – Darksaber because he was beaten in battle by a droid. And then she kills the droid with the Darksaber. I think she just reclaimed the Darksaber. Sure. With an intermediary, so she didn't even take it from a Mandalorian. Why did she give it back? Why won't she take the damn thing? Because she's in love with him. She is that actually your answer? That she wants I, I, hot, Yes. She I, wants him to have the Darksaber so that they have an excuse to keep spending time together? No. It's she doesn't she's not willing to take it from him because she cares about him and respects him so much. It's like, but, but she doesn't not, want it. Yeah. And but, she but, arguably just claimed it from a droid and it's hers now. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not sure that the very fast moving events at the end of this episode necessarily represent her long-term decision-making about the dark saber. Okay. Like I, I think that she, she had time when she was cooking soup though. She's cooking soup, and she decided, I am putting this thing that's in my hand that is the only thing on Earth that I want. I'm putting it with his stuff. I think but, that we have all assumed that the, the need for the Darksaber is more important in Bo-Katan than it really is. She, she said it's why they all left. She said yeah. it's the reason why her plan failed, and her entire armada abandoned her. And she, she said also that. said it in a super dismissive, condescending way about the people who believe that. So I, I'm not sure that she... Really respects that. Did they actually just bail because they don't like her? And she said, oh, no, no, it's it's the sword, I swear. Listen, don't be disappointed when they reveal that the the, the whole just Bogotan decision-making is because she's in love with Mando. The real Darksaber is the romanceful well, don't, don't say it. Don't say it. Oh, okay, all right. I thought you were going to go dirty. Um, oh, oh, no. <laughs> oh, man. I thought, thought you were going to oh, go dirty. Oh, I've, uh, dodged a bullet or missed an opportunity or both. What no, is best no, line I, I, of the episode is my question for you. No, I was going that the real dark sabers in your heart all along. The friends you made along the way. She's in love with, with Jinjar and that is a t- super great thing. And the rest of the season is going to be awesome. Everything's great. The universe. Okay. What is the best line of the episode, Jamie? Best line of the universe is <laughs> because it is the only time we've heard that much swearing in a star Wars show. And we're just lucky it was underwater, so we couldn't actually hear because the sensors would have killed Disney, I think. I think that there was probably a swear uh, from Bo-Katan in her helmet, too, when she saw the mythosaur. That, 
Wait, that's what I'm talking about. What were you talking oh, about? Oh, I thought you were talking about with uh, Jen, Jen getting pulled down. I thought. I oh, no, no, no. Her seeing the mythosaur and just. Because you know, she what, didn't really go, blah, 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 blah. She just went, blah. Like, it was yeah. one well, quick what, 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 what? I mean, what, what's that What's that weird Star Wars swear that doesn't actually have a definition, but just means bad stuff? That's probably what she actually said. Yeah. Banta fodder, voodoo, whatever the fuck it is. Yeah, that thing. Whatever yeah. it is. All right. So, uh, yeah. Bo, a, so, best line of the episode. Do we have any nominees, or are we just going to roll Actually, best lines of the episode, um, that, you know, a proud people is just a memory, is is got to be one of them, because that is really hitting home how much was lost. Yeah, the, the the line I actually really love of, you know, what are you looking at, as she's looking at Grogu, it's it's offhand, it's flippant, it's, it doesn't necessarily fit, but it's a way for us to understand, in language that we on real Earth use, how she is reacting. She is opening up and doesn't necessarily like that she's being seen. Like she is letting them see her and then doesn't know how she feels about that. Um, which I find that that line somehow told me in a stereotypical tropey way, exactly what she's going through. And, and I loved it. Um, honestly, almost every single one of her lines would get a nomination uh, because all of it was really cool lore. All of it was really interesting um, both for the past, the possible future, and, and all of it. So I'm, I'll leave it at that. But what, what, what do you have as, as the actual good stuff? So Bo, Bo gave us a lot of great lines, but I am actually going to pick a Mando, Mando line for best line really? of the episode. So best line of the episode is Mando talking to Bo, and he says, Without the creed, what are we? What do we stand for? Our people are scattered like stars in the galaxy. The creed is how we survived. You rescued me, and I will always be in your debt. But I can't go with you until I fulfill my obligation. So a lot of things going on in that that quote. One is he explains just what we were talking about in the religion discussion earlier, that the creed is a unifying thing for a people that need unifying, that are scattered throughout the galaxy, that the empire has destroyed their home world, that just killed most of them, that this can be the thing that can unify and pull them all together uh, culturally and politically. He also says, uh, you rescued me, acknowledging to Bo that, that, that he is in her debt. And he says, I can't go with you until I fulfill my obligation. Interesting phrasing there, because it, what Mando is saying is, I got to go do this thing, but I will go with you after that. Like, I'll be with you. I'll go and do whatever you're doing after that. And I think that we are going to see him now team up with Bo and and. In Bo's desire to rule Mandalore, unite the people, fight the Empire, whatever the fuck the thing is, I think that Mando is with her now because, of, in part, he's acknowledging that in this line, that she saved his life, he's in her debt, and as soon as he goes and does this thing to help him fulfill his obligation to the creed, the unifying thing of the people of Mandalore, he will now be her partner. So I, I like your answer, actually, and I like it more the more I'm thinking about it. Um because, you know, he had already said, I'll join up with you. So I, it didn't phase me when he said that now, the, the implication, I can't go with you yet. Um, but pairing it with you saved my life and I, I owe you kind of thing is is more of just like a promise of uh, I have something that trumps everything else going on right now. But like I owe you a life debt or whatever. Like I'm your man a little bit. I, I don't know how strongly that will be done. They may never actually lean into that at all. But that idea of, you know. I, I, you saved me and I really owe you and I will go and do what you need me to go and do is kind of implied there. And that is kind of strong. 
And you know what? And think of it, it was just one second, but think about how they illustrated that I am in your debt thing between Mando and Boba Fett. Like they've already shown us between Mandalorians how important that concept of I, I owe you one is and how they act on it. And they put themselves at, at long-term risk and they commit a lot of time to fulfill these favors and obligations to each other. So we've already seen it play out on screen. And now we know that Bo has, or Mando has this obligation to bo Yeah. When, and if that whole, you know, if, if this podcast episode right here and this one line in this one show about what are we without the creed makes me personally rethink religion, I'm not going to know what to do with that. Like, I, man, I'm going to be staring at the wall tonight because of you. Mando has sold Bo-Katan and Jamie on religion in the same episode. Shout out episode two of season three. This is a big episode. So, hey, this is Avril. I, I will be listening to Avril Lavigne, though, as I search my soul and as I, like, rethink, you know, existentialism. Why'd you have to go and make things so complicated? Avril Lavigne dating Tyga, by the way. She's back in the back in the news. Pop culture. Pop culture Tyga's relevant. like mountains with trees on them. The rap, the rap. That seems like she would do that. Like she's definitely the dating the rap. Is my is my boyfriend? Hey, this is apropos of nothing. Did you know that the the runtime of the next episode of Mandalorian? I don't. You make it sound like it's either ten or an minutes. hour. What's that? Fifty four minutes. It's going to be the longest episode of Mandalorian to date Ooh. of any season. That's probably. I don't. I don't expect to be tired of it. That's probably about how long in my heart I wish they all were. I think it's probably better that they're shorter. But that's probably how long I want them to be. It's going to be a big episode, 54 episodes, the longest episode to date of Mandalorian coming up in episode three. All right, before we wrap up, let's do a nostalgic moment of the episode. I have the nominee for you. Is it the Mythosaur? Because I actually wanted you to tell me what a Mythosaur is. Uh, well, I, I, I mean, I, I think I know about the, the Mythosaur, which you know about the, the Mythosaur. The, is that the thing Boba Fett rides in the cartoon Christmas special? So I don't know. I'm, I'm, I will look up some just basic information about the myth, myth, Mythosaur, but I, that wasn't what I was going to nominate. I was going to nominate the pod racing at the beginning. Mine is actually uh, the the droid, the you know kind of shaky droid being sold on Tatooine to somebody who doesn't really want it, and the little red droid going. Burr, 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 that, that that was actually it. Just the junkie droid. Mythosaurs were a species of animal native to the Outer Rim world of Mandalore. Enormous in size, the Mythosaurs dominated their world until the arrival of the Mandalorian Tong, led by the warrior known as Mandalore I, in a campaign to conquer the world for their own. Mandalore I and his crusaders slaughtered the gigantic beast and drove them to extinction. The skull of the Mythosaur became the symbol of the Mandalore, the traditional ruler of the Mandalorian clans, clans, the planet Mandalore, and the Mandalorians themselves for generations after. So it is the the it was the ruling class of the planet Mandalore until Mandalore the first showed up, tamed the beast, and then they went into quote extinction. But it's clear that there's at least still one left. Little little Loch Ness monster situation. Okay, and just so you know, because I just checked it. Um, for anybody who has seen the cartoon Boba Fett from the Christmas holiday special, the thing he's writing there is not a mythosaur. It's called Pars Ichthyodont. So not that. So don't expect it to look like that thing from the cartoon. I think it used to, I think that in ancient times, before the Mandalorians got to Mandalore, I think that you could consider them as like dinosaurs, right? They, they ruled the planet. 
but they were like large reptiles and yep. that, and that's how they ruled. I think now we can think of it like the Loch Ness monster. It's, it's under Apparently, the water yeah. and there's one and you see it like every bajillion years. Like I think that's kind of how we can think of it. Oh, I, I'm interested. And, and they, they did a really good job of, um, alluding to it with the previously on talking about it, her talking about it, her explaining the skull thing and then seeing it. Cause you only start for a little bit. Not everybody's going to know that that's Mythosaur. Not everybody, but most people will cause they, they foreshadowed it rather. And I think there's some lore around the idea that the person who is meant to rule Mandalore, who is the Mandalorian ruler, sees the creature like that, that, that the mythosaur makes itself visible only to the ruler of Mandalore. I think so that's it's where we're going. Actually, I've forgotten. Um, I'm just starting to rewatch the series. Um, episode one, season one, the, the farmer I have spoken guy whose name I don't remember, he says, you're Mandalore, who tamed the Mythosaur. Surely you can ride one of these. So they were even planting it there that it's a thing, just so that people would know the words. Maybe they hadn't planned it, but they did a good job. Yeah, I'll say this about the writing, is that they write seasons in advance. So um, John Favreau said they're writing season five now. That season three, obviously, has been filmed and everything. Season four has already been written, and season five is being written now. So they do they can make like, changes I'll, to four. To prepare for whatever they want yeah. to do five. So a lot of this foreshadowing is done because they write the seasons in like two or three season clumps, which I think is really smart because it kind of everything becomes interconnected and a little bit more consistent. So, all right, that's it for our episode review of the second episode of season three of The Mandalorian, The Minds of Mandalore. Jamie, any concluding thoughts before we wrap up this week? I love the episode. It was kind of everything that I want. As I said, I, I, one or two things I didn't like of an interaction that just didn't make sense to me, but honestly, I loved it. I think it had Monster of the Week aspects in just the right amount, where we saw one, two, three new creatures that he had to interact with, but it was all for a real thing. It wasn't even distractions. Like Honestly, these were all on the path. We hit all the ordinary Mandalorian hallmarks, except for random person sends him on a distracting side quest. But we still got effectively the side quests of, you know, this thing that captures him. So I, I, I liked it very much. Um, big, big thumbs up has everything I want from it. And I just want more of it. Maybe 54 yeah. minutes of it. Yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. I think this, I think they're showing us where this season's going, which is backstory of the Mandalorian culture, Mandalorian people, the Mandalorian planet, the ruler of Mandalore. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's all going to be about that. Uh, so I'm excited to see it. I'm excited for the next episode, a supersized episode we get in week three. Jamie, thank you for joining us, and we'll be back with you next week to review episode three, season three of The Mandalorian. Hope everybody has a good week. See you then. Bye.